Well, good morning. It's uh, always a joy to be here with you and to worship on this Lord's Day. Uh, and if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. We're continuing our study in, in this Gospel, and we finally arrived at chapter 6. Uh, it, it's hard to believe uh, that uh, today is the 1st of November, and this really marks the beginning of the holiday season. Uh, we just had our fall festival last night, uh, which is our church's Halloween alternative, and we had a great time, uh, both the kids and the adults, uh, or the big kids. I had fun just dressing up and uh, playing games and having treats. Um, but with that over now, uh, the major holidays are upon us. And Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's are all around the corner. And so often during this time, many will be asking the question of, what are your plans? And some invariably will ask, what are you doing and are you going home for the holidays? And for many of us who aren't from around here, that's a relevant question. Many are already making plans to go home this time of year, and there's always a great sense of anticipation when going home. When we've been away for a period of time, there's a sort of genuine excitement and a nostalgia about it and warm thoughts and being able to go back to one's hometown and roots, to be able to see family and friends, to be at the place that you grew up. In this passage of Mark chapter 6, Jesus has made such plans to go home. And he planned to bring his disciples back with him. Much like how we would bring home friends and show them uh, where we grew up, uh, this is what our Lord does. But this trip was much more than that. Jesus has a reason for bringing his disciples to Nazareth. Because there was an important lesson for them to learn. And that lesson is a lesson about rejection. This is really a story of rejection. This scene is set immediately before the 12 are sent out two by two to, to the surrounding areas with the good news of the kingdom. But think about what these disciples have just witnessed concerning Jesus and his ministry. Beginning in chapter 4, we saw a series and a progression of miracles that displayed the power of Jesus. Our Lord had calmed the storms. He cast out demons. He heals a woman. He raises the dead with just the power of a word. It is an incredible display of his sovereignty over nature and demons and disease and even now death. And then you think about the sort of faith that it invoked. As a result, the, dem the demoniac wants to be a disciple of Christ. The woman with the bleeding problem has faith that heals her. Jairus demonstrated faith in Jesus when his daughter was dying, and then faith in Jesus when his daughter had died. And these disciples have seen Jesus succeed in ministry. He, he just hits it out of the park each time. It makes it look so easy. And now they're about to be sent out for the first time to preach the gospel. And the danger is they go with unrealistic expectations in doing ministry. That all we got to do is do what Jesus does. And we invoke his power. And all these people will be saved and we'll be able to heal people and, and maybe even raise the dead. 
All we got to do is just say Jesus' name and all of this happens. But we know that's not realistic. And Jesus wants to teach them this. That being a disciple and following Jesus is hard. There are frustrations and ups and downs in life and opposition from the world. And when you do ministry, there will be disappointment. And people you try to love won't love you in return. And the people that you preach the gospel to will reject you. And you will fail more than you will succeed in life. That's what Jesus wants to teach them before he sends them out. And so Jesus is thinking, I know the perfect way to teach them about disappointment. To teach them about how unsuccessful ministry can be. And how hard the work of the gospel can be. I'll bring them home. I'll take them to Nazareth. And as we'll see, this was not a warm homecoming for Jesus. Our Lord will be rejected by his very own people. It is an unbelief that it is in some ways unbelievable because of what people had already known about Jesus and what they've seen with their own eyes and heard concerning Jesus and his works. And of all people that should have believed and given a hero's welcome to our Lord, it would surely be his hometown. But as we'll see, they reject him. And our Lord, he marvels at this lack of faith where he had a right to expect it. Not merely among the Jews, but in his hometown and among even his own family. And there's some truth here. That if there's any way to show people that you're not that impressive, introduce them to your family. Okay? If you ever think that I'm that great, talk to Carissa. Okay? Meet my sister Lindsay okay? and the rest of my family. If you need a reminder that you're not all that, okay, go home. And the people there, not impressed, okay? <laughs> they really see you as they think you are. And in some cases, they will see you as you really are. And this is a sentiment that Jesus encounters when he goes home. And understand this. This sentiment says nothing about Jesus, okay? The Lord is sinless, perfect, and righteous. But this says everything about the people at home and their hardened heart and the depths of their sin and unbelief. But again, all this sets the stage for what the disciples will encounter, and they needed this lesson. But more than that, it was also a lesson they needed to learn about Jesus, as we'll see. So that's the context, and I want to just delve deeper into the people's response, and hopefully that we can learn from their unbelief. And then secondly, we'll look at our Lord's response to them. And so that's our short and simple two-point outline for this morning. And so uh, before we get into the text, let me just pray for us one more time and ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Father, we do thank you for the privilege to come before your word, and we ask now, Spirit, that you would be our teacher and guide, that you would lead us to truth, and we pray that we would be changed as a result and that we'd be made more like your son, Jesus Christ. Be glorified in this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you're taking notes, first we see the response of the people here. Look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So here, Jesus, he leaves Capernaum, and he goes to his hometown. This is Nazareth. Okay, remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And Nazareth was just this small, obscure, slow-paced, rural, nothing-to-do sort of town. Some of you might say, oh, wow, like Sacramento, right? And then I'm like, no, okay, I stop hating on my hometown. Sacramento is cool, okay? It's a, it's a city, okay? But think more like Forbes Town, okay? That's where we have our CBM camps held each summer. It's a small town, nothing really out there. Nazareth was just like that, where there was no more than 500 people who lived there. And so you think about the size of the two services that we have, and that would be more than half the population for this entire town. And having grown up in this tiny place, Jesus probably knew almost everyone there. And so Jesus comes back to Nazareth with his disciples. And it happens to be during the Sabbath. And as he so often does, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. The synagogue was simply just a gathering place where people would meet together for worship service on the Sabbath day. And there the law of God would be read and taught and expounded. And Jesus would come this day to serve as a sort of guest speaker. And as he teaches on this day, Immediately, there is a buzz in that place. It says that the people were astonished, verse 2. And they were saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Our Lord would often provoke amazement from people in what he said and what he did. And it's the same thing here in Nazareth. But why they were so amazed was that it was coming from Jesus, of all people. See, this wasn't a good amazement. It was a condescending one. Because these people knew Jesus never had formal training. He wasn't an apprentice of a famous rabbi, nor could his wisdom be accounted for at home. He didn't have their credentials to be like this, and so they're asking, who is this guy? We know him. See, the people of Nazareth are amazed, but negatively. So rather than celebrating that one of their own taught with such ability and wisdom, the townspeople are cynical and skeptical, and they try to discredit Jesus. See, they said in verse 3, is not this the carpenter? The Greek word for carpenter literally means one who makes or produces things, usually of wood, but also of stone. So they, they were also stones masons. In Jewish society, there was absolutely nothing demeaning about manual labor. So it wasn't an insult to call Jesus a carpenter, but this wasn't complimentary either. Their thought was that this man's occupation isn't fitting for the type of wisdom that they heard. Just as there may be perception that a blue-collar worker would not be a scholar or a learned man, 
at least to the notoriety that Jesus reached with his teaching, there was a cynical attitude behind their thought. There's no way this unintelligent, blue-collared carpenter can teach like this. And certainly, they don't make for messiahs. And then they say, and isn't this the son of Mary? Now, what's odd about that expression? They say son of Mary, not son of Joseph. Remember, the Jews were a part of a patriarchal society. And as you know, the name of the father is usually attached to the name of the son. Much the same here that the surname of the father is carried on by the son even when the father is no longer living. And it could be that Joseph was no longer alive or that he wasn't around. But in John chapter 6, it assumes that he's alive. But even if he were dead, in that culture, they would still refer a son to his father. So to say son of Mary was meant to disparage and insult and ridicule because it insinuated Jesus' illegitimacy. We don't really know who Jesus' father is. From day one, there were questions surrounding the birth of Jesus and rumors began to circulate that this was not Joseph's son. We recall the story of the virgin birth and the events that surrounded it. Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married, but Mary was found to be with child, even though she and Joseph had not been intimate. We know that an angel, a messenger of God, came to them and announced that Mary would bear a son, and that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And of course, the son would be none other than the Lord Jesus. But people didn't know that. And they didn't believe it. Instead, rumors were that Jesus was born out of some sort of affair that Mary had with another man. This expression was meant in every way to belittle Jesus, this son of Mary. And along with Mary, mention is made of Jesus' brothers and sisters. And they said, isn't this the brother of James? James, later known as James the Just. This is the James who leads the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is also the one who wrote the letter of James. And then they mentioned Joseph. This is not Jose, plural. This is Joseph, okay? <laughs> Which is a variant of the Hebrew name Joseph. And so, in fact, Matthew gives the name Joseph in his gospel, which is another indicator that these are Jesus' real brothers and sisters because he had a brother named Joseph after their father. Mary and Joseph, they had come together and they had a big family. And so there was James and there was Joseph and then there was Judas. This is the writer of the book of Jude in the New Testament. Jude verse 1 says, a servant of Jesus Christ and says, brother of James, the one just mentioned. So the question is, why is he called Jude and not Judas? Because of what happened with Judas Iscariot. After his betrayal, Christians who were named Judas shortened their name to Jude, and that's what happened. They wanted to be as far away from that name as possible. It's like how there aren't many Germans today who named their kids Adolf, okay? 
It's just a name that you didn't want to be associated with. And then they mentioned this older brother named Simon. Now, Jesus was the oldest of five brothers and had at least two sisters that are mentioned here, but their names are not given because they were likely married off and had families of their own. Now, despite the fact that some of his siblings went on to become leaders in the church at this point, there was nothing special about this family and our Lord's lineage. They were nobody. They were nobodies in the people's eyes. And worse yet, they were unbelieving nobodies. John chapter 7 verse 5 says that not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers. Isn't that amazing? Jesus couldn't even get his own family to believe in him. You would think that surely if there'd be anyone who believed, it would be his brothers and sisters. And yet we're told that not even they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, we met their family in Mark chapter 3. When they had gotten word of what Jesus was doing, they seized him. For they, for they said that he was out of his mind. So the people of Nazareth made these associations with Jesus. And they just couldn't accept that this man who grew up among them, who did carpentry work for them, who came from that family, there's no way that he could be the Messiah. I mean, not even his family believes that he's the Messiah. And in the end, it says they took offense at him. End of verse 3. Scandalizomai. They were scandalized by him. It was an absolute, absolute blasphemy in their minds that Jesus would claim to be the Son of God. It was such a disgrace for this local boy to come back and act like the Messiah. And they're saying, who does he think he is? This guy is on an ego trip. He comes back and he pretends that he's God. It was scandalous. And this is the same word that you'll find in 1 Corinthians 1, where it says that the gospel is a stumbling block, a scandalon to the Jews. Repeatedly, the scriptures talk about how the Jews couldn't accept Jesus and the gospel. It outraged them. Here's the issue. They were too familiar with Jesus to be impressed by him, to believe in him. We have a saying that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Or in this case, to fit this verse, familiarity breeds unbelief. It's possible to be exposed to Jesus and over time be unaffected by him or the things of God at all. I thought about it like this. Like many of you, we just got our flu shot to protect against the virus this time of year. And as you know, how a vaccination works is they inject you with strains of the flu virus so that you build up antibodies against it. And it helps you develop an immunity to the real thing during the flu season. And so you're inoculated. And from my understanding, and I had to ask a trusted source here, uh, this is essentially how vaccinations or certain medicines work. 
is that you're, you're given either a dead or a weakened strain of the virus or diseases in small measured doses. So you're, you're exposed to a small sampling of something that keeps you from getting the real thing, the, the full-blown effect of it. In some ways, this happens to so many people in the church when it comes to Jesus. There's a gospel inoculation where people have an exposure to a form, a superficial form of Christianity, but they become immune to the real thing. They get familiar with Jesus, but they never truly know him and have Christ as Savior and Lord and love him with all of their heart. And so it's like how a vaccination works. They get just enough of this thing to be familiar with it and give it enough time they become immune. One of the most harmful things that we can do is insist on a form of Christianity without showing the vitality of the real thing. We have to be so careful to exposing our kids and our youth and unbelievers to a faith that is simply about doing Christian things. And you impress them that they have to go to this and they have to talk like that and they have to live like this and they're really being given a lifeless version of the faith while not truly being affected or having an authentic Christianity of their own. And kids, they can tell if mom and dad are just sending me to church just because Jesus is a good thing. But if all we're doing is giving them an exposure to Christianity without modeling a passionate devotion to Christ, we are likely to inoculate or humanize them to the real thing. And then we have to be so careful ourselves not to be so familiar with Jesus that we are no longer impressed with him. It happens so often. I heard a story some time ago of a pastor who discipled a young man in the church who grew in the faith as a result and he became a leader in that church. And yet the more time that he spent with this pastor, the more familiar that he became with him. And over time, something happened. Something changed. His pastor was no longer pastored him. He, he was just John. No longer did he view this pastor in high regard. No longer was he receptive to his ministry. No longer did he speak of him in glowing terms. And when others would speak well of him, he would downplay it. Few were his affirmations and many were his criticisms. And he began to think that I can do better. And see, he grew contemptuous through his familiarity with him. And eventually, this young man got the leaders on his side and drove the pastor out of the church. So many stories that I hear like this. And I ask, has this happened to you of others? Someone that you've respected or that you've known, but you begin to know him or her too well, and really no fault of their own, but you don't see that person in the same light. And instead, you begin to think lowly of them. And it is such a dangerous place to be. 
because it reveals something deeper in the heart that in this context is detrimental to faith. In some ways, this is what happens with Jesus. Some of us are so familiar with Christ that we are no longer impressed. There's some of us who come here this morning and you may profess Christ as Savior and Lord and you come to church at times and, and you may do Christian things, but there's nothing going on spiritually. There's no contempt, but there's no passion either. And there may be some like those in Nazareth here. You know about Jesus and you can appreciate the good that comes from it, but you're underwhelmed. You're no longer amazed by grace. You go through the motions and you keep from being ministered to at an arm's length so that there's no effect in here. There's no excitement when you talk about the Savior. And I'm not trying to promote some sort of contrived emotion that you're supposed to have about the Lord and the gospel. But do you share about our Lord and how great that he is with exclamation points? Do you proclaim his mercies to family and to friends, to unbelievers in your lives? And you do so because you just can't help it. Because God has just been so kind to us. And you want to just shout to the world. For too many people, Jesus is just an add-on. But that's not true faith. That's not the sort of faith of knowing Christ and of clinging to him as our only hope, of having him as our treasure. See, a lot of people think they know Jesus, but they've never been shown who he really is. And then when he is finally shown for who he is, and that the gospel is more than just this idea of a free ticket to heaven and this fire insurance from hell, when they're finally shown this, they become immune. They've been inoculated to that which is true and real and living because they've been so hardened by the superficial thing for so long. Let's learn our lesson from those in Nazareth who were too familiar with Jesus to be in awe of who he was and what he came to do. So this was the response of the people, and we look, secondly, at the response of the Savior. The next half of the story focuses on what Jesus does as a response it says in verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. In the face of unbelief and rejection, Jesus, he quotes a proverb that a prophet, that a prophet is honorable anywhere but at home. But of course, he's speaking of himself. And the idea and phrase was common in both Jewish and Greco-Roman contexts. So Jesus, he takes this wisdom from the current day and he applies it to three concentric social circles that he mentions here in Nazareth. To his hometown, one. To his relatives, two. And to his own house, three. 
He speaks of his rejection within each of these three circles where it becomes more personal and more hurtful each time as it finally extends to his own household. Those in Nazareth, his hometown, and even his family, they rejected him. And so it says, our Lord in verse 5, he could not do any mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 5 is such an interesting verse. It says Jesus couldn't do miracles there. All this time, he's been doing all these miracles all over the place at any time and having a dramatic impact, and then he comes to his hometown, and he couldn't do any miracles at all, with the exception, uh, exception of a few. Mark isn't saying that Jesus' power was somehow limited and that the Lord was somehow robbed of his divine power by way of their unbelief. Mark was saying that he couldn't do his miracles in Nazareth and still be true to his mission. See, Jesus didn't come as a traveling healer. He came to call for men and women to repent of their sin and to believe in the gospel. His signs and wonders were a means to that end. It was meant to point to himself as the Christ, the Son of God who would save us from our sin. And so as a result, the people of Nazareth would be deprived of the Lord's ministry and greater revelation of himself because of their unbelief. Their hardness of heart caused the Lord to withhold showering his blessing upon them. Because see, God, he doesn't come to force himself upon a hostile audience. We're in election season, but I'll tell you what. God is not running for God. He is not campaigning. He is Lord and there is no one else. Jesus possesses the fullness of deity and power, but he won't. He refuses to. He refuses to work in such a way to encourage a superficial response from people who are hostile to him. And we said this last time that Jesus, he will not avail himself to those who will not listen to his words, for they will not see then the wonders of his works. If they don't believe his words, they won't see the wonders of his works. And so it ends not within this arbitrary display of Jesus' power, but it ends in verse 6 with Jesus marveling at their lack of faith. Jesus being amazed at such unbelief. I wonder if you've ever thought of what Jesus could possibly be amazed about. It's like asking the question, what do you get for someone as a gift who has everything? What could possibly amaze Jesus? He's the creator of the universe. He is all-powerful. He knows all things from beginning to end. Well, Mark tells us that there were two occasions where Jesus was actually amazed. One was regarding the centurion who comes to Jesus in Matthew 8 to heal his servant. But this centurion says this, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
So just say a word from where you're at, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, it says, was amazed at such faith. And he would heal his servant. So on that occasion, he was amazed at the presence of faith. But on this occasion, he was amazed at the absence of faith. Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. See, they had privileges. You guys realize this? The people of Nazareth had privileges that no one else in history ever had. They had special access to him, insight into his life, and opportunities to interact with Christ, to see him, to hear him, to behold him. This is God incarnate, the living God before them. And yet they did not believe. J.C. Ryle, he adds to this, and he says, quote, For 30 years, the Son of God resided in this town and went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years, he walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was all lost upon them. They were not ready to believe the gospel when the Lord came among them and taught in their synagogue that day. They would not believe that one whose face they knew so well. End quote. They knew his face so well. And yet instead of provoking faith, their hearts were hardened in unbelief. And so they were denied the works of our Lord and the manifestation of his kingly rule upon them. And in response, notice Jesus in verse 6 would move on to the other villages. And there is no record of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth at all. This would be the last time he is ever there in Nazareth. And he will not minister to them any further because they would not believe. So that even what they have will be taken from them. This is a fulfillment of a Mark 4. They didn't take advantage of unique privileges that were given to them, and as such, they would not experience the power of God among them. There's a word for every one of us here. If you're an unbeliever, let me ask you, have you taken advantage of the privileges given to you, or have you taken for granted those privileges? For those of you who have been blessed to have Christian parents, those who have poured themselves in prayer for you, to have godly parents sharing the good news of Christ to you and modeling the faith for you, have you come to believe upon Christ and know Him as your personal Savior? Have you come to love Him? For those who have grown up in the church or have been maybe on the fence for some time, have you taken advantage of the privileges given to you of hearing the gospel faithfully proclaimed from the pulpit week in and week out, hearing the gospel from your Sunday school teachers and your counselors and from your brothers and sisters in Christ within this family here? 
For others of you, have you taken advantage of this privilege to even meet here on this Sunday morning? Do you see it as a privilege that we can have freedom to worship God and to hear His word to you this day and each and every day? To have this gospel proclaimed to you that you might know the truth of Christ and who He is and what He has done and what He has called you to. That we can gather together in this context that is not afforded to many people around the world, especially in Muslim nations, where it is certain death to simply name the name of Christ. See, these are means of grace to you from God. And yet so often, we don't appreciate it for what it is. There are too many like those in Nazareth who don't receive these unique benefits with faith. And instead, they have hearts hardened in unbelief and will one day have to give an answer to the Lord at judgment. For those who have been given much, much is required of them. Realize, my unbelieving friends, that the very breath that you have, this other day that you have to live, this opportunity that you have to hear the good news of salvation, are expressions of God's grace to you. And my exhortation is that you would not be like the people of Nazareth. For if you do not respond in faith, Jesus will marvel at your unbelief because of everything and all the opportunities given to you. And this amazement that he has is meant to be a sobering thing for your soul. Let us not have him amazed at us. Let us instead be amazed by him and his love for you and turn from your sin and trust in Christ for forgiveness and mercy upon you. The Lord is calling you to do that. And all you need to do is just come and have faith. For all believers here, there too is much for us to marvel at in this passage. Because you realize that all of this points eventually to the cross. See, when Jesus responds to the offense of Nazareth, he says, a prophet is without honor among his people. And this would be the first time in this gospel that the term prophet is applied to Jesus. And it evoked images associated with the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus would come as a prophet, as one who spoke for God, right? That's what a prophet was. So Jesus would come as a prophet, but would be rejected like a prophet as well. And this saying intimated that he will suffer the same fate as those of other prophets. And what happens here and what our Lord says would call to mind the words of Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you Isaiah 53. This is what it says in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
Isaiah is saying that he appeared ordinary. There was nothing special about him. Does this sound familiar? And so he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we esteemed him not. Do you see Jesus' rejection in Nazareth foreshadows the rejection of his very own people whom he came to save? A rejection that will culminate in, of all places, Jerusalem. The people that Jesus came to save and bring into his kingdom. See, all of this anticipates the hostility that will eventually cost Jesus his life. And our Lord, he knows this. For this is why he came. For the Son of Man comes to give his life a ransom for many. So this rejection that he experiences would only escalate from there and would eventually culminate at the cross where Jesus would be nailed to for our sin. The prophecy by Isaiah would be partially fulfilled here in Nazareth. And their rejection and in the events that will transpire serve to confirm that he is the suffering servant of God prophesied of 700 years ago in Isaiah 53. Do you see that the shadow of the cross falls upon the path of Jesus from this moment on? And he will eventually go to a hill called Calvary. And this growing opposition that he experiences a taste of here is a part of the greater plan of God to save sinners like you and me. And he would have to be despised and rejected by men. He would have to be a man of sorrows. He would have to be wounded for our transgression. He would have to be crushed by God for our iniquities, for our sin, by God's wrath that we deserved. See, Mark is saying, make sure you don't miss this. Don't lose sight of what all this means, that this points to Calvary. Let me end with a quote from David Wells, and he writes this of Christ. He says, quote, He entered our life with all of its quarrels and discord, its arrogance and deceit, all of its godlessness, its self-serving spiritualities and misleading religions. He was met not with the worship which was due his, but by great hostility against him. But such is this love this self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-abasing love that he freely and joyfully gave of himself to do what had to be done, knowing all that was entailed. He willingly chose not to enjoy the worship of the angels in a place of utter holiness for an uninterrupted eternity for the gain that redemption would bring. End quote. Jesus willingly came to be despised, rejected, and eventually crushed by God the Father for our sin with the righteous wrath of God that was ours to receive. 
our Lord suffered in our place and he rose again that we might be given the privilege and this opportunity to have faith in him, to be forgiven of sin and to receive his love and to love him in response. And I ask you, believer, follower of Jesus Christ, I ask you, Christian, have you become too familiar with Jesus that you are no longer in awe and that you are not amazed at such undeserving grace? Let us not be immune. Let us not be hardened. Let us not be cold to this. Let us instead say with the psalmist who says in Psalm 118, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Father, we... We do pray that from our hearts that we would marvel at Christ and of such love towards sinners that he willingly gave his life to die for our sin, that those who trust in him might be saved. Father, I pray for those who don't have faith just yet that you would give them eyes to see you for who you are and what you've done on their behalf and that you might draw them to yourself. That this day might be a day of salvation for unbelievers in our midst. Lord, our prayer for every one of us is that you would show each of us more of Christ that you would reveal yourself to us in greater ways. Lord, let us marvel at your wondrous deeds. Let us, Lord, deepen our affections for you. And Lord, may we be transformed to be more like your son as a result. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in absolute gratitude. And Lord, that we would continue to seek more of you and see more of Christ in our lives. For your glory and namesake we pray. Amen.